This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ari Barbalat. I'm here today on the New Books Network with an interview with Dr. Robin Hayes, founder and chief creative officer of Progressive Pupil, Black Studies for Everybody. We are here today on the New Books in African American Studies podcast to discuss Robin's new book, Love for Liberation, African Independence, Black Power, and a Diaspora Underground published in 2021 by the University of Washington Press. It's an honor to have you with us, Robin. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure to be here, Ari. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Can you kindly tell us about yourself? Can you share with our listeners a bit about your background and upbringing so that we can know you a bit better? Absolutely. I I am from Brooklyn before it was artisanal, Um, Brooklyn, New York, and I grew up in a family that was African-American, Afro-Caribbean, and Latinx. And so um, in the Republic of Brooklyn, which is, you know, uh, uh, one of the capitals of the African diaspora um, in terms of having such a diverse community of people, period, and then also very diverse Black community. So um, I was fortunate enough to grow up in a household where we listened to soul and soca and salsa, and um, and that was sort of the beginning of my interest in, um, you know, in transnational connections between Black people, and then also the beginning of my interest in social movements, because the conditions in Brooklyn um, for my family, um, where you know my grandparents started out, you know, they migrated from the South, from the Jim Crow South, and met and fell in love on a on a stoop in in Bed Stuy, in Bedford Stuyvesant, um, and then you know started a family in the housing projects, the Ingersoll houses in Fort Greene, and then managed to get their own home in a redlined, segregated neighborhood. Um, you know, seeing the struggles of people in my family with class, with gender, with sexuality, um, with immigration, 
um, also sort of lit the fire of my interest in social justice and social movements. So that's kind of how I started out. And then um, uh, I gained another kind of cultural education when I earned a scholarship to a prestigious boarding school in the Northeast called St. George's School in Rhode Island, um, in the United States. And, um, and I learned about another minority, the 1%. Um, and uh, that's where I learned, you know, um, to quote Kanye West, that, you know, having money isn't everything, but not having it is. And, you know, what I learned a lot about what relating across difference and also um, the things that really do tie people together across difference. Um, and uh, then I went to NYU and I studied at Tisch School of the Arts. And after I graduated from NYU, I uh, joined what I call the Radical Circus, a group uh, called IFCO, Pastors for Peace, that um, advances a people's foreign policy. And they do that by organizing a human rights delegations and humanitarian aid caravans to Cuba and uh, Chiapas, Mexico and Central America. And um, we actually did uh, a, a lot of work going, uh, challenging the US embargo of Cuba, going across the Canadian border um, from, from Buffalo actually, and then working with unions in, in Toronto um, and working with unions actually in Montreal to, to ship things to Cuba from there. And so, um, and so after that, uh, you know, that was an amazing experience because again, you know, I was traveling throughout the United States on these humanitarian aid caravans, going from town to town, um, and, uh, and in places that are supposed to be red states or purple states. And yet there were these robust communities of activists, people who would fit right in, in the parking lot in Costco, you know, in Volvo station wagons who had very progressive ideas and were not only didn't not only did they have the ideas, they were willing to put their money where their mouth was and their time where their mouth was in terms of being part of the solution. And so that's where I kind of learned you can't really judge a book by its cover, you know. Um, and after I did that for a while, that was a very rewarding experience. But I felt like I was kind of putting a Band-Aid on a broken leg. We would, you know, bring tons of aid to Chiapas, Mexico, for example, that, you know, which was affected by the suppression of the Zapatista rebellion, the indigenous Zapatista rebellion. Um, we, we would bring tons of humanitarian aid and people would be so grateful and they'd put the aid into use right away and then we'd come back in three months and they would need it all again, you know. And so I, I began to think about how could I, you know, were there deeper solutions that I could, could, could think of and, and affect? And so I, I went to the I went to Yale University and pursued a PhD in political science and African American studies. And it was during that time that I became interested in content creation because um, I felt like I was learning so much that was so relevant to my Black, Caribbean, and Latinx and queer communities. Like, you know, this stuff is great, but I know, you know, my people back at East Flatbush are not necessarily going to read a 300 page, you know, book full of like $10 words. Um, and so that's when I began uh, making documentaries. And one of my documentaries, Black in Cuba, is actually now available on Amazon. And I did that. And, um, and as I was doing that, I was also working first on this project, Love for Liberation, as a dissertation. And then I adopted it into 
into a book. And so here I am talking to you. Thank you. Uh, what an amazing life lived. Uh, I'm so impressed by what you shared and the important things and initiatives you have been involved in. How did you become interested in the topic that would become this book? How did you become interested in the relationship between African independence movements and African-American civil rights? Well, I had sort of witnessed the power of transnational connections between communities during my time with Ifco Pastors for Peace, because you know we would, you know we would go stop by stop, collecting donations, telling people. My my program area was Chiapas, Mexico. We would talk about, you know, what was going on with Chiapas, and what was so interesting to me was that you know we would go to sort of wealthier, uh, mostly white communities, and and people would be generous and 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 give their time and give their aid and, and give money. But it was never as much as when we went to um, churches that were mostly Latinas um, and folks. Oh, it was stunning, right? Because you would, you know, go places where it's like clearly folks are first generation American or have recently arrived, and um, and they just felt felt, you know, invested in the success of these communities and the safety of these indigenous communities in Chiapas in a way that was just very personal and very direct, even though they were in the United States and those folks were back in Mexico. Um, and so um, and so that's when I first began to kind of see like the power of that transnational identification. And then I saw a documentary that came out in the 90s um, that is a classic documentary. It's called When We Were Kings, and it's about um, Muhammad Ali and his comeback after being banned from boxing due to his being a conscientious objector in the Vietnam War. Um, his comeback to boxing, which was the you know called by promoter Don King the Rumble in the Jungle in in Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo (DRC). Um, and in that documentary, it's not only about there's there's the heavyweight fight between Ali and George Foreman, but there's also this uh, Pan African festival, and James Brown is there, Miriam McCabe is there. Um, Delia Cruz is there. And I just became fascinated by this period of transnational identification among Black people. Like here, here was that exact, you know, passion, compassion, and sense of hope um, that I had witnessed, you know, doing work around Chiapas, but in my own Black community. And so I became very interested in that time you know, what helped create that sense of identity and connection, and then what happened to it, right? Because I was like, why are we not still doing this? <laughs> this is great. <laughs> and, um, and especially in light of, you know, there's both the tradition of sort of in, in the Black community of embracing our African heritage, a, a tradition that, that begins or, or is really amplified and becomes more widespread because of this connection between Black power and African independence. But there's also, you know, a, a, a less um, less popular but still consistent counter narrative of like, well, you know, it's it's 
Africans or us or, you know, from the African-American community. And so I just wanted to get into to understand that time better and understand the complexities of that connection between African-Americans and, and people from the continent uh, in particular. Wow, that's so important. Thanks so much for the investment and inspiration that went into this book. <laughs> and thanks for the benefit to all of us of the, the product of that inspiration and investment. Mm-hmm. How did you choose the title Love for Liberation? Why did you select that? Mm-hmm. Well, what struck me as part of um, the research that I did for this book is I had the, the honor, really, and good fortune to interview a lot of surviving activists from, the, from, from these movements, from Black Power and African Independence Movements. And um, something that, two things that struck me were one, that all of them were still committed to the values of racial justice and were still doing that work in some way or another um, decades later. And also, that despite the fact that, you know, all, all social movements, especially when they're effective, go through a period of being sort of mischaracterized as being rageful and angry and dangerous and violent, when usually they're not. And with these activists, it was very clear that they were all motivated by love to do this work, right? Love for themselves, love for their families, and love for their communities. And so... Uh, so I chose the title um, because, one, I see that same love for liberation, you know, widespread among people who are committed to Black Lives Matter and committed to creating changes today. And there's people from all different backgrounds who have this commitment then, at, then and now, um, but also to really center the conversation away from, you know, what we're trying to dismantle to what those of us who are concerned about equality uh, want to build. You know, it's a, con- it's a constructive project being for racial justice, you know, and, and what we build and leave behind, I think, is, as is shown by this relationship between African independence and Black power, what we build and what we leave behind with our activism is the most important thing, um, is the thing that is most transformative. Um, and so that's, that's why I chose that title, because it really is about a love for liberation. One theme conceptually in your book is that of authenticity. Um, there's a quote that you have that I only share in part where you write, this concept of individual authenticity is more problematic for Black people who have a sense of linked fate with others in their group and are often forced to witness the misrepresentation of their cultures, beliefs, and behaviors because of cultural imperialism. For these communities, the issue of authenticity is concerned mostly with the ability to make meaningful choices about aspects of life that their indivi- that affect their individual and collective selves. This kind of authenticity enables Black social activists and their constituents to create alternative narratives of heritage and relations of power. What do you mean by authenticity? What are you trying to say in this passage? And how does the concept help us understand the argument presented in your book? I think the, the concept of authenticity, as we embrace it in mainstream culture, goes back to Enlightenment discourses about the individual, right? 
and and let's face it, not not just the individual, the straight white male landowning individual, right? Right, and that you know part of the argument for democracy versus monarchy was that the individual, the straight white male landowning individual, deserved free, unfettered, free expression, right? Um, and to have, and they deserve a freedom that is about individually doing what you feel is right for you when you want to do it, right? So that's the enlightenment concept of authenticity, which is an argument against like, you know, for democracy against the tyranny, what they felt was the tyranny of the monarchy, of monarchies in general, right? So that is still in mainstream culture, um, mainstream culture in the United States, in many parts of Europe, that is still the conversation about authenticity. It's about authenticity on an individual level. It's also an authenticity for white, straight uh, men, right? Women who make claims of, hey, I am get to be me. I want to do what I want to do regardless of gender conventions are often bullied and punished. LGBTQ folks who say, hey, this is me. I am who I am, right? To quote Lakaja um, uh, Fall, right? Like, I am who I am. I am my own creation. That is excoriated and, and sometimes met with violence, right? So it always has been in mainstream culture something that's reserved for a select few, right? This whole idea of individual authenticity. So that's one. Two, um, and then Black people, right, are when we tell the truth about our experiences with racial injustice, for example, we are often punished and excoriated and met with violence, right? So authenticity has always been a privilege, a white privilege. Um, and it's also always been something that is expressed as something for the individual. Well, when you're a member of any historically marginalized community, what happens to others, right, is, um, is tied to what happens to you. Right? And so Michael Dawson, the renowned political scientist in a book called, a classic book called Behind the Mule, he talks about the ways in which Black people have more of a sense. I mean, we are a human race. We're all in it together as climate change is showing us, right? But he talks about how Black people have a sense, uh, more of a sense of linked faith because, you know, what happens to one is likely to happen to many, right? So even though you know, we may not be like Eric Gardner selling loose cigarettes to support a, a large family, right? We know that the police officer doesn't necessarily see the difference, right, between someone like Eric Gardner and, you know, another black man who may be a PhD, right? That that's not what's really going on there. So we have this sense of linked fate. And so because of that sense of linked fate, um, Authenticity becomes about the authenticity of our communal experience, right? Not just who am I, but who are we? Who have we been? Who can we be now? Who, who can we be in the future? And so that is part of what I was talking about there in terms of like this idea of authenticity and how it's a little bit different um, for Black people um, in terms of it's not just about we don't have the same privilege to think only of what does blackness mean for me, 
right? We have to think about it in terms of what does it mean in terms of relations of power in society. Another key concept in your book is diaspora underground. Mm-hmm. Can you explain the concept to our listeners who might not be familiar? Yes. Well, it's, an, it's my original theory that I put forward in this book about how and why Black social movements engage across national borders. And, you know, there are a lot of great texts in the field of diaspora studies um, and African diaspora studies in general, but a diaspora is simply um, a community that remains, um, that continues to identify with each other long after they have become physically separated or, or physically dispersed in different countries. So of course, there's a Caribbean diaspora, there is a Puerto Rican diaspora, there's an Irish diaspora, and so on. Um, and this book is concerned with the African diaspora, which is people of African descent who um, also have to contend with anti-Black racism, whether they're on the continent or have been dispersed over generations elsewhere. And I was interested specifically in diasporic connections um, between social movement organizations and activists. Um, How can people actively working to create social change, how and why do do they engage and what is the impact of their engagement? So a diaspora underground is the uh, spaces in which people engage the how and the spaces that, in which people sort of come together face to face, but those um, the interest in meeting, the interest in connection I've found is really motivated by um, representations from in communities that are indigenous to the African institutions that are indigenous to the African diaspora. So specifically in this book, I talk a lot about how historically black colleges and universities like Howard University and Spelman, as well as black press outlets. Today, the black press outlets would be, you know, like VET and Blavity and um, for Harriet, the blog. These institutions really um, made an effort to communicate to the to their constituencies about the successes of social movements in other countries, um, and also provided a space for, um, for example, with HBCUs, provided a space for African and African American students to come together and dialogue about their respective activist uh, struggles. Um, and so you first start off with uh, the indigenous institutions providing this information, and then also you have um, uh, you have generally have a situation in which activists in their own national context, whether they're in the U.S. or Ghana or Congo, where they're experiencing frustration, right? They have tried to affect change um, in their own countries, and they are banging their heads against the wall because elites are resisting and keeping them from making progress. So in the case of Black Power, you had you know, black power activists learning about, you know, folks in Algeria and Ghana and Congo getting their own countries where, you know, as James Baldwin, you know, powerfully says, we could not even get a, a hamburger or a Coke at a lunch counter, right? And so it would, you know, in the context of being frustrated in their efforts to advance equality in the United States and seeing, wow, 
look at the alternatives, right? Look what's possible. That motivated them to kind of connect and learn and think about how can we work together in a transnational scope to advance these changes. But another important part of that is that they were able to come together in what I call emancipated spaces, the physical spaces, whether they're conferences or, you know, uh, for example, in Algiers, the Algerian post-revolutionary Algerian government gave, uh, uh, gave asylum to a lot of different liberation movements, including the Black Panther Party. They're able to kind of come together outside of a white supremacist gaze and have conversations about how they can work together and, and, and move towards, towards a, a transnational um, racial justice. And so, yeah, so that's the kind of diaspora underground is that it consists of activists who are frustrated in their efforts to achieve racial equality who are learning from indigenous institutions about successes in other countries and then come together face to face in these emancipated spaces to build relationships and think about a more liberated future. You alluded to Ghana uh, just moments ago. Um, speaking of which, how was Kwame Nkrumah influenced by Marcus Garvey? And how did Nkrumah himself inspire Martin Luther King and other African-American activists? Well, what's so interesting in doing this research is I found, you know, my, the period of, of research is 1975 to 1974 or, or, or thereabouts. I should, you know, I should have memorized these times by now, but it's or thereabouts. And, but what was interesting is when I first started uh, researching Kwame Nkrumah, it turns out that he was actually part of a previous diaspora underground. Because I talk about in the book how diaspora underground, all social movements have what they call in social movement theory, cycles of contention, right? No social movement lasts forever in, a, in one iteration. You have social movement organizations like the NAACP or the African National Congress. They have lasted a really long time. But if you look in, in periods of history, they are very distinct, one period to the next. And, they, and that's how part of how they remained successful and impactful is because they've adapted to different historical realities and changed over time. So Kwame Nkrumah uh, goes to the United States and studies at Lincoln University um, and is going to Harlem. And, and he's um, actually in the United States in a pre-civil rights movement period. He's in the 40s and early 50s, just as the Montgomery Bush boycott is starting is when he leaves to go back to Ghana and start that cycle of African independence contention. So he's influenced by Marcus Garvey um, and the Universal Negro Improvement Association, the UNIA, one of the largest racial justice movement in, in history, by the way. Um, uh, he's really influenced by Marcus Garvey's conversation about, you know, the best thing for Black folks to do is to unite across national borders, right? And, it's, it's, and, and this is coming also from Marcus Garvey's experience and Amy and his wife, Amy Jacques Garvey's experiences with Jamaican folks who had migrated to the U.S., right? That really the best way that we can 
can achieve racial justice is to work together across national borders, and also that um, in uh, that we need to have autonomy, right? So Marcus Garvey, you know, is quite different from someone like W.B. Du Bois in the sense that he did not necessarily want to transform American institutions. He wanted to organize Black resources and Black land ownership for Black people to have power over themselves. And so um, famously, Marcus Garvey had the Black Star Line, which was, you know, the idea was that there was going to be a, a you know, ships that repatriated Black folks back to Africa. Um, and this was, you know, people have been critical of this because it's like there wasn't really an agreement with folks in Liberia, for example, like that, <laughs> that they were going to surrender this land. No land had been purchased. Well, it wasn't quite all the way thought through, but it was so powerful and so popular on in the Americas, in the U.S. and the Caribbean, um, because um, it, the promise not just of freedom, but of autonomy, right? Political autonomy and, and economic autonomy. And so Mark, so Kwame Nkrumah, you know, was very much exposed to these ideas of Marcus Garvey while he was at the historically Black College Lincoln University, and also when he was hanging around Harlem and engaging with folks who were having this transnational conversation. And so when uh, Ghana became independent and they got a new flag, the Black Star, is still to this day on the Ghanaian flag as a tribute to Marcus Garvey and that transnational idea. So for Kwame Nkrumah and you know the movement he was a part of, the Convention People's Party, that the idea that Ghana would be independent but also would be a beacon for Black freedom throughout the world, that was always a part of their independence mission. Moving from Ghana to Congo, what parallels did SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, perceive between the West's non-support of Congo's self-determination and racial inequality in the United States? Yeah. Well, you know, particularly the, the first... Um, leader of the Congo, um, Democratic Republic of Congo, was a man named Patrice Lumumba. And um, he was, you know, a leader of the Congolese independence movement. He was imprisoned because of his leadership. He was a political prisoner because of his leadership of the, the Congolese independence movement. He was tortured. But there was such international support for, um, it was the movement, the Mouvement National Congolais, MNC, Congolese National Movement. There was such support for the MNC and, and Patrice Lumumba that eventually Belgium, uh, the colonizer of Congo, um, yielded and, you know, and they had an agreement that, that Congo would become independent. And after um, Congo, but, but it was uh, the transition from Belgian colonialism to Congolese independence is really a, a, an, an indicator of how neo-colonialism would sort of take over the continent in, in the preceding years in the, in the, in the late 60s, 70s, and 80s. And um, so neocolonialism, yes, okay, maybe Belgium doesn't technically own you, but if there is no or very little in the way of true political autonomy or economic autonomy, how, how independent are you, really? 
and and do the people of your country benefit from the natural resources and human resources that they have? And in, in Congo's answer clearly to this day, the answer is no, right? Um, and so um, in this time, uh, in you know months following Congolese independence, uh, you know Patrice Lumumba tries to honor the democratic process of the country and tries to um, really keep Congo's resources for Congo. And, um, and because of that, the U.S. And, um, and Belgium conspire to remove him from power. And, um, and he was uh, first taken under house arrest by uh, General, then General Mobutu, who becomes um, one of the most egregious human rights violators, um, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, of the 20th century. Um, uh, he goes on to take over power in Congo and be complicit with foreign interests in Congo to his own best interests, not to the people of Congo's interests. And Patrice Lumumba is murdered. And so um, for SNCC and other Black Power organizations, the murder... Uh, including and and also Malcolm X and what would become the organization of African American unity, the murder of Patrice Lumumba really becomes a signifier of the lack of the U.S.'s intention to make good on their promises of supporting racial justice, right? Because at this time, you know, there's also the Cold War is mounting in terms of its tension, and so there's this competition for African allies between the U.S. and the Soviet Union. And so the U.S. does works really hard in Africa to appear totally supportive of civil rights and racial equality, right? There's, a, you know, there's, there's stunning propaganda, right, at the time, um, going around Africa, you know, making it seem like, hey, you know, we, we, we love our African-Americans and, you know, the Soviet Union doesn't even have any African-Americans, so why would you side with them, basically, right? And, um, but the reality at home, people who are, you know, getting arrested, getting beaten, getting threatened because of their efforts, and the people like SNCC activists who were enduring the federal government's often reticent to get involved in local struggles in the South for civil rights and in the North for civil rights, um, the U.S.'s complicity in Patrice Lumumba's murder really shows a, a, a lack of, a lack of good faith. And also um, that, you know, uh, there's a turn, right? There's a turn in the willingness of elites to escalate violence against people who are really just doing the right thing. Thinking hypothetically and counterfactually, how might history have turned out differently had Lumumba lived and survived and stayed in power? Well, counterfactually and hypothetically, um, which I think it might be my new ca- my new catchphrase. Um, uh, it's, it's the Congo is so so wealthy in terms of its natural resources, right? Um, I mean, I think you can think about it in parallel to a country like Botswana, which um, has an extreme is the wealthiest country in little quite as kept as the wealthiest country in Africa. Um, because of its diamond wealth, and not just because it has diamond wealth, but because the diamond wealth has been nationalized. So all of the people um, of Botswana have a claim to the diamond wealth of that country. And so they 
you know, have the corresponding uh, longer life expectancies, educa- you know, higher educational inter- uh, attainment, um, less violence, et cetera. It's a, a stable um, and, and prosperous and healthy country for the most part, just in general. And so I think there is a chance that the people in the Congo could be living like the folks in Botswana had Lumumba survived um, because the Congo has more than enough to sustain the people in the Congo, right? Um, There is no actual scarcity in the Congo. Scarcity is manufactured by the lack of indigenous control over the resources that the territory has. Thank you for sharing that. Moving towards uh, Algeria, can you comment on the significance of the Algerian war, the French-Algerian war in your story? Um, One particular figure who you describe is Ali Lapointe. Why is he a notable figure and how does his, uh, his story and his contribution figure into your narrative? Sure. Um, what's interesting, as you say, that, you know, the French-Algerian War, like, the, that's what the French called it, right? Like, the French-Algerian War, and the Algerian folks called it the Algerian Revolution. And, um, and, I, I, and to me, that was always something that was very interesting in terms of how, you know, history, so much of history is about perspective and about how dynamics of power impact our perspective. So from... Uh, and also it goes back to what we're talking about in terms of a love for liberation, the folks in the, um, the front, the front liberation national, the FLN, um, or national liberation front, they just wanted to take Algeria back from the French, right? They considered it to be a restorative project, right? Algeria had existed obviously thousands of years before French intervention. Um, and France thought of it as a one, a one-to-one, you know, struggle. And so, um, but in the Algerian Revolution, um, Ali Lafont um, became a sort of iconic martyr. Um, and what struck me in doing research for this work was, was how much he was like Malcolm X in the sense that he started out, um, you know, as, as, a, as someone who didn't really have parents to take care of him as a child and so he wound up out on the streets and then he became a pimp and a hustler and a thief and then he was in prison and it was when he was in prison that he found the FLN because that at that point the movement for Algerian independence you know was was really gaining traction among young Algerian young Arab Algerian men and um, and when he kind of came to consciousness, as they say in social movement circles, became woke, um, when he got out of prison, he became uh, a leader of the, of the Algerian revolution in Algiers, the Casbah, on the streets that he had come to know as a, as a criminal. Now he was still a criminal in France's eyes, but now he was, in his own eyes, a revolutionary. And, um, and so... Uh, it, part of why he's a notable figure is not just because of his leadership, but because 
the FLN kind of took him on that trajectory, which was a similar trajectory as like going from Malcolm Little to Malcolm X, um, growing, discovering who you actually are outside of colonial definitions of what you can be, if that makes sense, right? So he had thought of himself before he came to understand the FLN and its goals and became involved, understood himself as somebody who you know, didn't deserve more than to be hustling on the street and stealing and robbing and exploiting women. And when he understood, like, you know, this condition is a condition, again, it's not natural, it's not inherent, it's manufactured by colonial expectation, he began to really understand himself as, as a man and as a man with values, as a man with someone to contribute. Um, unfortunately, depending on your point of view, um, he eventually you know in the battle of algiers the french um there's and it's also there's a, a brilliant film uh, that is fictional but doesn't feel at all fictional about this about the battle of algiers called the battle of algiers um yeah uh it's devastating and um but uh unfortunately during the battle of algiers the french became the French really drew a hard line, I guess is the, the easiest way to explain it. Um, they began using torture to expose uh, the cells of the FLN um, and to find its leadership. And also the pressure, you know, the FLN responded to the pressure by having more and more terrorist attacks on civilian locations, which initially they had pledged that they would not do. And the violence really spiraled to the point where Ali Lapointe was hiding. Um, with a few other members um, of the FLN, like within a wall, in a home in the Casbah, um, and he was discovered, and the home was bombed, and he was killed. And so um, his sacrifice to the struggle has become iconic over time, not just within Algeria and France, but I think internationally. Um, but I think a big part of why he remains resonant is, is how he began. Um, and how how much of himself he was able to reclaim through his activism. What was the significance of the bombing of the Kasbah by the Pied Noir? And how did the FLN retaliate? How was the bombing of the Kasbah significant in the history of the Algerian Revolution? And how did the FLN retaliate and respond? Well, I think... With so the Pied Noir are that's a term for uh, white settlers in Algeria, um, and so this is something that's very interesting to me. Why I, I say you know people of African, you know I describe you know to me a black person is somebody of African descent who is also contending with anti-black racism, and I think it's important to be specific about that because. There are white people who are African. Yves Saint Laurent is from Algeria, right? And so, um, and so I don't, I think it's important to recognize when you have settler colonialism, you have folks who have legitimate claim to the identity. If, you know, like in Zimbabwe, there are folks who are third and fourth, they're of British heritage initially, but they're third and fourth generation Africans, like they're African, but they're not black, right? And so um, similarly in Algeria, um, allies of the French in the Algerian uh, against uh, Algerian independence were the Pied Noir. Uh, many of them were French. Some of them were from other European countries. Um, 
but they definitely had a strong anti-Arab racist um, point of view. And um, in Algeria, and this is something that's, that's not discussed a lot in terms of thinking about talking about the conflict, Algeria was a Jim Crow-like or apartheid-like society where, you know, the Arab folks were, their racist stereotypes of the Arab folks were commonplace. Um, you know, there was an expectation of how Arab folks should speak to Pied Noir, um, which was one of deference. Um, so um, there was the segregation of educational opportunity, of jobs, all of that. So um, it was very much an anti-racist revolution. Um, and, and that element of it is often, I think it's obscured, you know, by the term French-Algerian French War as well. Um, uh, but to your point, once the, the Battle of Algiers, in a way, the, the violence and torture really backfired against the French because um, the radical left in France and other parts of the world became, you know, more aware of what was happening in Algeria. And especially, you know, it's important to remember this is not too long after World War II and the horror of the Holocaust and the horror of the violence throughout Europe, and the sensitivity about fascism and fascist-like behavior was profound. And so, especially in France, um, which had been occupied by Nazis, right? So when it became known that France was using, the French army was using torture to stop independence, right? Um, it really turned the Algerian revolution into an international cause in Europe, America, and North Africa, where other independent, recently independent countries like Tunisia felt they had to get involved and be supportive. So ultimately, as, as horrible as the sort of bombing of the Casbah was and the torture, um, it did rally more support for the FLN and enable them to persevere till they actually won. I'd like to ask you about Malcolm X because uh, you pay some attention to his own personal diplomacy with Tanzanian and Egyptian leaders. Um, you comment how his engagement with such personal diplomacy highlights how the face-to-face the -face connections that can be cultivated in emancipated spaces breaks down misinformation propagated by elites, allows for deeper transnational connections between organizations, and facilitates attribution of similarities between groups across national boundaries. What lessons does Malcolm X's personal diplomacy with Tanzania, with Egypt, and with others in Africa teach us about the nature and character of diaspora undergrounds? Mm -hmm. Well, what's so interesting to me about, you know, there's a time when uh, Malcolm X attends a, a gathering of African heads of state um, uh, in Cairo. And this is, you know, after he's been sort of pushed out of the, the Nation of Islam. And he is really 
you know, trying to figure out how he can continue to be of service as an anti, as a racial justice leader. And, um, and he had been to Africa before, and I think in part because of his Muslim faith, he was very open to this idea that there can be, there should be transnational connections between black people that can help, you know, that could help advance black liberation. I mean, you know, to, Islam is, is, a, is a transnational movement in of itself, right? And so, um, and so he, in Cairo, he learns that, you know, the U.S. has been kind of spreading misinformation about Malcolm X, right? Um, and that, you know, people like Julius Nyeri, who was a leader of the Tanzania, leader of Tanzania at the time and leader of the Tanzania independence movement, kind of think of him as some wild firebrand who's not really serious, right? And, um, and so that seems like, okay, you know, and so um, in, because he's there, there is this emancipated space in which he can connect directly, right, outside of you know, U.S. intervention, right, European intervention, um, he is able to make that direct contact with, um, with one of, uh, with someone in their government, and, and, and they can see for themselves, right, this is who Malcolm X actually is, this is what he wants to do, and they, they actually allow him to address um, to address the conference, and it's, a, it's a, one of his most famous uh, pieces of oratory appeal to African heads of state, where he talks about what's actually happening in the United States with civil rights. And at the time, there were rebellions. Um, there were a few rebellions in northern cities of the United States, and he spoke to that specifically. And so I think, you know, it's, it's really important to see in that example how important it is for Black activists to have the ability to sort of connect in these unfiltered environments where they can learn the truth about each other because they can be misrepresented and their goals can be misrepresented and distorted um, to black activists in other countries. Understood. Why did Malcolm X rebuke Maya Angelou by saying that carrying placards will not win freedom for anyone? How did their different views on protest differ? And how did this criticism of her embody his larger worldview? Mm -hmm. So after um, Patrice Lumumba was assassinated, Africa, there were protests at the United Nations organized by um, uh, a number of activists, including Maya Angelou and Abby Lincoln. And, um, and so Malcolm X was the leader of uh, a Nation of Islam uh, mosque in Harlem and was very popular and very well known. And so she went to him and asked him to, um, you know, to support, to voice his support for the people of Congo and condemn his Lumumba's assassination and maybe come down to one of these protests at the UN. And, um, and Malcolm X was a part of the Nation of Islam at that time. The leader of the Nation of Islam at the time was Elijah Muhammad, and Elijah Muhammad was against political activism, right? This was, so as a minister of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X could not go down there and walk with, walk with the other activists and carry placards, right? 
And so he had to turn her away. But it was at the same time he spoke of, um, in his autobiography, he spoke of his increasing frustration with this limitation of the, of the nation of Islam, right? That here he was being asked all the time to comment on race in America and racism in America and how it impacts black people. And at the same time, he was not allowed to do anything about it concrete. So once he is pushed out of the nation of Islam, he had the freedom to become explicitly political in his action, right? Whereas before he was only able to be a critic. After he was pushed out, he began to find a way to be constructive in terms of what he wanted to build as an alternative. Who was Fannie Lou Hamer? Can you elaborate on her and her personal story? I'm laughing because I'm like one of the greatest humans of all time, basically. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. 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 I don't know, the best. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So for folks who are not familiar with her, um, Mrs. Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was an African-American woman who was a sharecropper's daughter and I believe a sharecropper's wife um, who actually is a really stunning example of what SMIC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, called indigenous leadership, right? Um, and the whole idea of indigenous leadership, I mean, we know about charismatic leaders like Martin Luther King and, and Malcolm X, and, and, you know, today we have Patrice Color uh, Khan and, and, you know, Alicia Garza and Opal Smetty, the founders of Black Lives Matter. You know, we have, um, we have the Obamas, right? Charismatic leaders are those folks that, you know, can stand in front of a crowd and, and electrify um, and, and can be avatars for our aspirations, right? Aceso Chavez, you know. Um, those are, um, or Dolores Huerta, right? Those are, those are or, or a Marsha P. Johnson even, right? Those are our charismatic leaders. Indigenous leaders are folks who are grounded in the community that is affected by the problem. Yes. And have developed um, relationships and respect because of their willingness to do the work, right? And so I would always joke with my students, like everybody knows the person who makes sure everyone signs the birthday card or everyone knows, you know, what the registry is for the baby shower, right? Or organizes the carpool, right? Um, or, you know, puts together the school play, right? Everybody knows that person in their social circle, the people in their social circle that can be relied on to help advance the collective and get things done, right? And, um, and those people are often women, right? And not only solely, but often women. And so Fannie Lou Hamer was such an indigenous leader. And when the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee um, began organizing in her area um, and began talking with folks about, would you be willing to help us get people to sign up to, to register to vote? She, she, was, she got on board and she became one of their most impactful organizers and leaders. Um, and so unlike someone like Stokely Carmichael or Ruby George Robinson Smith or um, James Foreman or, or Bob Moses, I mean, he rests in power, 
recently passed away. Um, she wasn't somebody who came from the north to the south to help out. She was a um, lower income black person in the region, in Mississippi, um, who was trying to transform her own life and her own access to political power. So, um, so that, that was Fannie Lou Hamer. And um, in the book, I talk about how, you know, during Freedom Summer, you know, Fannie Lou Hamer, like many SNCC activists, um, was attacked and brutalized by police um, because of her activism, um, lived in fear for herself and her family, and yet persevered. And during Freedom Summer in 1964, um, SNCC not only had the voter registration and they had the Freedom Schools, the popular education initiative, they also started the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. And the point of that party was to highlight that, you know, because of Mississippi, of course, to this day has a large African-American population, but when black people are excluded from the vote, you know, the representatives to the Democratic National Convention are, are all white, you know, all the people in the ticket are white, there, there's no black representation. So they started the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party to, and, and black people could vote for candidates in that party and they made a claim that, hey, we are the real Democratic Party of the state of Mississippi. This official one is not official because we're not allowed to vote. Yes. And so they went, yes. So they went to the Democratic National Convention in, in Atlantic City and, you know, they made this claim and they wanted to be on the floor. And Daniel Hamer made a, uh, a very powerful address to the convention and said famously, she's sick and tired of being sick and tired. And she talked about everything she had been through in terms of being beaten and um, the, the climate of fear. And still, in the end, um, the, the all-white Mississippi delegation was allowed to, 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 to take the floor and was recognized as official. And so that was a very difficult movement, a moment for SNCC. It was a crisis moment for SNCC because, you know, this was an example of how, you know, activists reach a ceiling and they start smashing their head against it, right? They had done, in their view, everything possible to affect a democratic change, to have our American democracy function as it should, which is one person, one vote, right? And and the Democratic Party turned their back on them. So um, Harry Belafonte, who had a connection with the leader of Independent Guinea at the time, Sekou Toure, Harold Alfonte, um, seeing the burnout, seeing the exhaustion and the discouragement, encouraged um, Fannie Lou Hamer and a few other leaders of SNCC to take a trip to Guinea. And Fannie Lou Hamer talked about how that was a transformative experience for her. And it's important to remember, this is 1964, where not only, there's no social media, there's, there's barely television, really. Like television isn't really in color that much. Right. Um, uh, we, we don't have the easy access to information, didn't have the easy access to information and imagery as we do now. She talked about, you know, this was the first time she had ever seen black airline pilots or like black, really black police officers, right, in, in a large number. And to see like there is a black president of the country and and then to be in an environment in which they were not in fear. 
for the first time in years, right? Really transformed not only Mrs. Hamer's, but, but, but everyone uh, on the delegation reported having this complete transformation in terms of their thinking about what was possible as a result of their activism. So it really, having that engagement in the Emancipated Space of Guinea in fall of 1964 really helped Mrs. Hamer and the fellow activists understand that there was that, that there was something possible, perhaps even greater than what they could achieve with one person, one vote, and that it was worth it to continue. In the closing pages of your book, you end with a series of salutes. You write, a salute to everyday Black people who throughout the African diaspora must use their resourcefulness, wit, and grace to survive against the overwhelming odds. A salute to ancestors who gave their lives in the past so that today's struggle is possible. A salute to those who remain in exile and prisoner on the ground as Indigenous leaders. A salute to the miraculous diasporic splendor of Black culture and the ways in which it helped us find joy, community, and self-love. A salute remains a powerful and unifying act because Black suffering and excellence are so often made invisible by the negligence and hostility of dominant institutions. What can we learn from the virtue ethics embodied in the individuals and characters and personalities presented in your book and alluded to in the passage that I've just shared? Is there any particular story, episode, or individual which personally impacted you or that you carry with you as a role model or as a, a personal inspiration. Can you share some thoughts on what you meant by that passage and the virtue ethics that you try to live by as you learned of them in the characters and personalities that you shared? And what can ordinary people learn from these virtue ethics? Um, yeah, I mean, I, to me, one of the most inspiring things about uh, the folks I interviewed and the folks that I read about in depth for this project was one, their belief that the world we need is possible sooner rather than later. I think, you know, systemic inequality, you know, whether it's, it's racism or homophobia, sexism, you know, there's classism, there's, there's so much work to do. It can feel like a mountain that can't be moved, you know? And folks like Mrs. Fanny Hamer and Malcolm X and Kwame Nkrumah, they were willing to just move that mountain one pebble at a time, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, no one, I think, from that time feels that they succeeded in everything that they were trying to do, right? Uh -huh. Like their vision for a truly um, just society, you know, we're still working on that all these decades later, but there is no question that they did move a part of the mountain. Yes. Right. And, um, and so to me, that is one of the biggest takeaways is that, you know, organizing does work. It may not accomplish everything we hope in, in as fast a time or in our lifetime, 
but it accomplishes something. And yes. that and and that should encourage us to think about what we can improve in our own neighborhood, institution, community, social network, whatever it is, right? Start start with that and stay consistent with that and see what grows. So so I definitely salute to that. <laughs> salute to people who are again, maybe not icons, right? Like a Mrs. Hamer or Malcolm X, but the people who are actually doing that work on a small scale, but impactful scale on a regular basis. Um, I think also another thing that I took away is how, how empowering it can be to have an expansive view of your identity. So many of the activists I talked to, the black activists I talked to, really spoke about how much more pride and and self-esteem they experienced, understanding that blackness was international in scope and that there was there was more possible when we relate across national differences. And I think that that is super important now because we have so much uh, more diversity, ethnic diversity in the black community in North America than we have had before, right? So the thing, growing up in Brooklyn, it's like folks were African, folks were Caribbean, folks were Latinx, folks were African-American. And you learn so much about the scope of this identity, having all of that to experience and engage with on a regular basis. So I think the more we can think about how we can relate and connect across difference rather than how we can sort of you know, uh, dig down in those differences and be in conflict with each other, I think the more we will be able to find solutions that uh, create the world we all need. Thank you for being so generous with your time, your intellect, and your erudition as to participate in our dialogue and interview today. As we bring this interview to a close, what are you working on now and next Mm -hmm. Can you share with us some of your current work and engagement since the completion of Love for Liberation? Sure. Well, I right now I'm working on a television, I'm writing for a television series called Sandokan, or centrally called Sandokan, that's from the producers of Transformers, Shield, and Devils. And so hopefully that will be coming to screens within a year or so. Um, and also I am uh, working on adapting Love for Liberation into a documentary series. So those are the kind of two projects that I have coming out next. Wonderful. I wish you only the best of luck in bringing those projects to fruition and seeing them through. Thank you so much, and, and thanks, thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you. Uh, It was my honor to be in communication with you and in dialogue today. Uh, Thank you for your time and for how much you shared with us. Uh, To our listeners, this has been Dr. Robin Hayes, um, author of Love for Liberation, African Independence, Black Power, and a Diaspora Underground, published by University of Washington Press 2021. I'm your host, Ari Barbalat, with the New Books Network. This is New Books in African American Studies. Thank you.